reading from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you know any Christians, or if you happen to be one, you've probably heard the word gospel as a kind of summary of Christian belief, connected to phrases like, God loves you, or Jesus died for your sins. But over time, religious words like gospel can lose their power and meaning by becoming too familiar. So, let's take a moment to rediscover what this important word, gospel, meant to the people who wrote the Bible. Gospel translates the Old Testament Hebrew verb, beser, and the noun, beserah. The Greek New Testament equivalent is euangelion, which is a compound word. Eu means good, and angelion means announcement. All of these words mean good news, but what kind of news? Well, in Hebrew, beser is what we might call national news, or a royal announcement. Like when King David hears a messenger beser that his army was victorious in battle. That means he still rules on his throne over the people of Israel. And after David dies, his throne is passed on to Solomon, his son. And when he was inaugurated as king in Jerusalem, a herald spreads the Besorah, that a new ruler is in charge. But after Solomon's death came a bunch of bad news for him, whose corruption led their nation into self-destruction. This is why the prophet Isaiah announced the good news that one day the God of Israel would come as the cosmic king to confront all corrupt and violent kingdoms and restore his rule over all nations. And so, when Jesus of Nazareth took the public stage, he continued Isaiah's gospel when he went around announcing the euangelion of God's kingdom. Jesus claimed that God was restoring his reign over his people Israel and over all nations, and he was the one bringing it all about. Now, the euangelion about a new king in charge means a new way of life. Jesus said that living in God's kingdom meant following him by putting down the sword and seeking peace through radical forgiveness and generosity, even toward your enemies. His good news required people to make a decision. This is why Jesus took his euangelion to Jerusalem to confront the corrupt and violent kingdoms of his day. But he challenged them in a surprising way with the power of God's generous love. As Jesus was being executed by his enemies, he received his crown and was mocked as a fake king. But he displayed true royal authority by forgiving his tormentors. Jesus was the one in charge that day, giving his life for the sins of others. And then, a few days later, everything changed. 
Jesus rose from the dead as the true king whose love is stronger than death. He appeared to hundreds of his followers and told them to spread the word well enough that all authority in heaven on earth now belongs to him. And they did share this good news all over the ancient world. They did it by writing the four accounts of Jesus' life that are the Gospels. That is, they tell the story of how Jesus brought God's kingdom, how he lived for others and died for their sins, and then was raised from the dead. Jesus' followers also shared the good news by simply talking about it. This is why Peter and Paul, or Priscilla and Aquila, traveled all around sharing the royal announcement. While it might look like the rulers of our world are in charge and can do whatever they want, the good news is that the crucified and risen Jesus is the true Lord of the world, the real king of all creation. And in Jesus' kingdom, things are different. It's where the real leaders are the servants, because the last are first, and the first go to the back of the line. It's where the hungry are fed and the homeless are welcome, because love is the most powerful reality of God's kingdom. And this good news is not easy to believe. It actually sounds kind of crazy when you first hear it. But something happens when people tell the story of Jesus and start living like he really is the king of the world. That's when this gospel becomes the best news that you've ever heard. How many of y'all can remember the last time that you got a smile? I know for some of you it may be a little easier. But I mean, how many of you can remember the exact day and time that you got your last phone call? Well, I can't. But I can remember the exact day and time when I knew I was not going to get any more phone calls. So typical child. I grew up in our neighborhood, and in our neighborhood was this large undeveloped area, which is to this day still undeveloped. It sits between our neighborhood and Highway 11, the, the highway that goes through Picayune. And that was our playground. We would spend all of our free time riding our bikes through this area, making paths, uh, making little dirt ramps to jump our bikes over, climbing up hills with our bikes. And in this undeveloped area was this rather large culvert. Uh, and that culvert went under the road that came into our subdivision, and it kind of emptied out into a little catch basin behind the supermarket that was on the highway. We spent a lot of time there. Um, I can't tell you the number of times I got fussed up for coming home with muddy shoes and muddy clothes. But for the most part, my parents, it's innocent fun. Didn't go for it. But still, I can still remember the day and time when I realized I wasn't going to get another phone call. It was August 20th, 1969, about 4.30 in the afternoon. Now, some of you, August 20th, 1969, may kind of stand out. If you lived in South Mississippi or South Louisiana, 
I can remember Hurricane Camille. And I can remember all the buildup to the hurricane. Uh, I can remember watching uh, Nash Roberts on WWL-TV. And if you don't know who he is, he was the Jim Cantore of our time. He had his whiteboards, and he was drawing the pictures and had the grids and told us when the storm was going to come. And he was more accurate now than these little spaghetti models that we get. But this hurricane was coming, and I can remember going to bed that Saturday night and just not really thinking about it. And then getting up Sunday morning and going outside and saying, wow, um, seeing trees down, seeing limbs everywhere. We lost a tree in our backyard. Uh, and it was just a little overwhelming. I had been through Hurricane Betsy two years earlier, and we lost a tree then, but that didn't seem to be as impactful to me as Hurricane Camille was. My father was working for NASA over in Bay St. Louis, and, you know, like most um, employers in this time like this, they rallied together and went out to help people. They spent some time in the Bay St. Louis area and the Gulfport area. And so on Monday and Tuesday, that's where he was. But on Monday night when he came home, he was just giving us a few accounts of what he had experienced. And he just stopped. And he looked at me and he said, and you boys need to stay away from that culvert. And... I just said, sure, okay. And he told a few more stories. Well, next day, me and my buddies were out riding our bikes, and I'm not sure who I, whose idea it was, but it's like, hey, let's go check out the culvert. There we go. So the culvert was about a four-foot drop from the road down to the catch basin, and we had, over the years, cut a little side path uh, down that hill where we would ride our bikes. Um, and so when we got there, we dropped onto our little path and rode down there. We ended up in about two feet of water. Now, we anticipated this. We had rolled our pants legs up so that we wouldn't, you know, get all dirty and, and all that stuff. So, you know, we were trying to be cool about things. So when we got there, we realized we couldn't quite get up into the culvert, which we really would have gone on one of the culvert, run and wheelied out the other end and landed in the catch basin is what our, our – normal thing was, but in this case, we said, ah, we probably don't need to be doing that. So we had to walk our bikes back up this little hill, and it was still a little wet, but we happened to manage our way up there, and just as I crested the, the top of the hill onto the street, I looked up, and my father's blue 1956 Chevy truck was coming up the road. So, obviously, the pit of my stomach just kind of dropped. Normally, when my dad drove by, and he drove by lots of times seeing me come out of that area, I would get what we called the quad wave. It was just this little limp wave he had, like, you know, you're too stupid to know what I'm talking about or what I'm thinking about, so just carry on. And we got that all the time, not this time. He slowed the truck down, didn't stop, made eye contact with me, and mouthed the words, get home. That little drive was the longest bike ride of my life. I can remember getting home, walking into the house, walking back to my bedroom, and just kind of standing there. And it wasn't long I heard him coming down the hallway. So he comes in the room and says, what you been doing? 
I was too stupid to, you know, try and uh, lie my way out. Just riding around with my, my friends. Really. What's wrong with your pants, though? What? So I look down and, huh. So when you roll your pants leg up and you happen to hit a little water, you know, the lower part of your pants leg gets wet. But when you unroll those, all of a sudden you have this seven or eight inch wet spot right around your knees, dry above it, dry below it, but right there it's wet. Hmm. <sighs> okay. Says, I thought I told you not to go in the closet. I just sat down. We were standing there, and I knew that the next thing that would happen would be he would start taking off that three-quarter-inch leather belt that he had, and he would just have to do what he needed to do. And he just looked at me, and then he sat down too. And he said, I thought that you were old enough that if I just asked you not to do something, that you just wouldn't do it. I wouldn't have to give you reasons why. And so he started sharing with me a little bit about what he had seen. He says, we, we found a speedboat stuck in a culvert just like that. Nose first, right stuck in that culvert down in Bay St. Louis. Pretty dramatic picture. He says, you know, we, we, we kind of encountered a guy in a subdivision, and he had left for the hurricane. He came back, and he was just kind of standing there, and we engaged with him. And we said, well, what can we do for you? He says, I can't find my car. Well, the car was in the driveway. He said, no, I had a VW parked in the garage before the hurricane. It's not there now. Well, my dad says, I think we know where it is. What? Well, if you look down the cul-de-sac, <laughs> there's a VW in a driveway down there, and they don't know how I got there. And somehow, through all the storm and water, that VW left the garage and gone down the street. He says, I didn't think I had to go through all these details and tell you all this just to tell you not to play in the culvert. Well, he stood up and said, you know, you're, you're too old for me to think. I should be able to just tell you to do something or not do something, and you just do it. So he began to walk out. He turned around, and he said, okay, you're grounded till Sunday. I've never been grounded in my life. I didn't even know what, really what that meant. So I thought about it, and on Thursday, my dad said, you need to get away from here, because I had spent two days underneath his foot watching everything he did, asking him questions about everything he was doing. I think we had had a little bit too much um, father-son time, and so uh, he said, you just should go play. Uh, but be home by dinner. That was always a good thing. I thought that I could just tell you to do something, and you would just do it. We've come today at the last of our series on the gospel. And I titled this, Now What? And we've learned a lot about the gospel. Many of you might remember several years ago when we did one of our equipping classes, we went through the book, uh, God's Big Picture. And Ron Roberts paints a good picture of what living the gospel is and that God's word is about God's people 
in God's place under God's rule and blessing. We can understand that. That suffice enough to help us understand what the big picture is. But Edward Welch tells us in his book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, that we seem to think have things backwards sometimes. We give more authority to God's created people than we actually do to the creator, God. We should have some form of a healthy fear of God, but we don't. He tells us that we should fear God. We are unclean people. We appear before the Almighty God who is morally pure. We should be rightly ashamed before him, and punishment would be completely just. During this bite-sized gospel series, we've learned that there is a greater plan. Shane started out in Genesis 3, laying out that we are sinners and we're in need of a Savior. We inherited guilt, and we also inherited corruption. Wes followed up in Romans 1 that Jesus is the good news. God promised him through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures and declared him the Son of God, who according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, we receive grace, and through that grace, obedience of faith. And we are called to Jesus Christ. And then he asks us to read the Old Testament. Next, Shane reached back into the Old Testament in Isaiah 53, showing us that, that was, it was God's will to crush him, to crush Christ, his son, becoming a substitutionary atonement, pouring out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, bearing the sins of many, making intercessions for the transgressors. Jesus had paid it all. Wes then followed up in Colossians 1 with how the price paid by Christ reconciled a hostile sinner to God. Why do we need to be reconciled? Because we were hostile in mind. We were alienated and doing evil things. As a result of that recognition, we learned that he's got the whole world in his hands. Last week, Wes took us to Psalms 2 and taught us that Jesus is a refuge for rebellious sinners. Our sin in rebellion against God's authority, in our rebellion, God laughs. Can we really think that we can outweigh God's authority? Christ is our only refuge. Serve the Lord with joy and fear and rejoice with trembling. So that brings us to today. Today we're going to be in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and Jared just read it for us. So now what? I hope we can understand today that knowing the gospel means we should be living the gospel. We say we understand the gospel. We got it. God, man, Christ, response. But we have to understand, if we really believe in the gospel, it doesn't stop at response. That's where it begins. In Ephesians, we see Paul writing to the people in Ephesus. This is a beloved church of his a church he started on his first missionary journey in about 46 A.D. And he returned there in the mid-50s with Priscilla and Aquila. And they stayed there for three years, and they helped develop this church. And then later on, um, he came back in the mid-60s on his third missionary journey. But now he's writing to them from prison in Rome. These are new believers. These are not 
what you would think of as seasoned Christ fo- or seasoned even God followers. These are first generation Christians. They're closely familiar to the eyewitness of Christ who visits with Peter and even with Paul's account, but they themselves are Gentiles. Their heritage is not in a Jewish nature. Their letter, this letter was also probably a circulatory letter. So many of the epistles when Paul wrote them, they were intended to be read at one church and then passed on to another church. That's why in Ephesians, you don't see a lot of condemnation for that particular church because he was just writing a letter of encouragement. In chapter 1, he talks about the spiritual blessing that Christ Jesus is and that recounting what Christ has done for us and following up is the prayer of thanksgiving for faith and encouragement and for them to stay enlightened. As with most New Testament churches, there were cases of heresy in the church, many trying to add to the message of Christ, and Paul wants them to understand who Christ is and will always be. So that leads us to chapter 2. First, we see that we are dead. When you're dead, you're dead. You can't do anything for yourself. What killed us? Well, our trespasses and sins that we have all walked in because we learned in week one we inherited guilt and corruption. We were part of the sons of disobedience. We lived for the flesh and from the flesh. Our thoughts are on us. And oftentimes, as our thoughts are still on us, Honestly, sometimes I think Flip Wilson had it right. The devil did make us do it. The devil is the leader of the sons of disobedience. Again, remember, these are Gentiles that Paul is writing to. These are not the loved, beloved children of Israel. They're not the children of Abraham. They lived one of the most cosmopolitan areas in uh, Asia Minor. They had many religions. Matter of fact, in Ephesus was this huge theater dedicated to the statues of all kinds of gods. Paul even used that to his advantage in Acts 17 when he was addressing them in that theater and talked about the unknown gods and shared with them that the God of Israel, this God of salvation, this God of Jesus Christ, was possibly this unknown God. Of course, the people of Ephesus, let's ate that up. One more God, that's okay. from when, as an 11-year-old, I was willing to hedge my bets, easily disobey my dad, and go play in a cul-de-sac. No big deal. For what? Curiosity, acceptance from my friends, the the fleeting thrill of the experience. Satisfying that was way, way more important than simply disobeying my dad. Listen as I read verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air. The spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Paul includes himself in that. He's part of the we. You know, no one wants to talk about God's wrath these days. 
We can't necessarily envision God's wrath. I mean, I could envision my dad's wrath as I made eye contact with him and he's pointing a finger and saying, get home. I, I knew what was going to happen. I knew the expectation that there was there. I didn't say, oh, he's just being funny. He's just joking with me. No, he wasn't pulling my leg. Less than 24 hours after he had sat down and just simply asked me not to do one thing, I had just disobeyed him and thought, huh, I'll do what's best for me. I can handle myself. Can you imagine how God feels day after day as his image bearers look like look him in the eye, point their fingers at him and say, no, I will do what I want. I can't imagine how God feels. I have to stop and tie my shoes like 12 times a day. I, I can't even begin to get into the mind of God. But I know what my dad felt. I experienced that as a father myself. I can't imagine what the creator of the world, the creator of me, the man, the image maker that I'm supposed to be bearing, how he feels. He constantly sees his creation turning his back on him. But, God redeemed us. Listen as I read in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of great love with which he loved us, when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is great love. My sister and I are about 11 months apart. My mom always told me the story that when the doctors said that they could, they did, and that's where I came from. And you guys can explain it to your kids. I heard all my life that I was not planned, but that I was loved. Well, we are planned. God had a plan for each of us when he created us. God has a plan for our lives. Before the beginning of time, you were known God. In chapter 1, Paul reminds them, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Throughout scripture, God reiterates the fact that he had a plan for us. In Jeremiah 1, God tells Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nation. In Psalms 139, the psalmist declares, Your eyes, that is God's eyes, saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Yes, this God, rich in mercy, he loved us before he even formed us because he possesses great love, and that, with that love, he loves us. 
Well, we have great love. In most cases, that love is for ourselves. I'm not standing here condemning any of you because I'm here confessing that I love myself more than I love most people. It's a hard truth to confess to, but it's true. I have a wonderful wife. I have wonderful children. I'm part of a great faith family. And I still think of myself first. I know the gospel, but I don't always live the gospel. I so often forget that I am the one redeemed. But verse 5 tells me, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when I was dead in my trespasses, I was made alive together with Christ Jesus. But how? By grace. By grace I've been saved. By grace you've been saved. Grace, unmerited favor. I did nothing. I had no part in establishing my salvation. I was dead, and I die each day because I refuse to mortify the sin in my life. But by God's grace, I have been made new. Not only have I been made new, I was raised just like Christ and will eventually be seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. So if that isn't clear enough, Paul decides to reiterate it with a little more emphasis and emphatically. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. If y'all know Wendy, Wendy is a great shopper. And I don't mean that she goes and shops all the time. I mean she knows how to find a good deal. When we were dating, I bought her a dress. And when she opened it, she looked at it and said, huh, this came from Dillard's. What would you pay for it? She knew what that dress cost, and she knew what it was worth. She just didn't know if I knew what it was worth. In our almost 30 years together, she has taught me so much about what a good deal is. So much so that the floor of her closet right now is covered with presents for the upcoming holiday season because she keeps finding good deals. But here we are. We're looking for a bargain. But God didn't pay a bargain price for us. God paid the greatest price possible for us. Here we are at work with the sons of disobedience, and God ransomed us. Again, back in chapter 1, Paul tells us, in Christ we have been redeemed through his blood. This redemption is the same thing as a ransom. So, we were always intended for God, but because of the imputed sin in our lives, we lived with the prince of darkness. But by God's grace, he paid a ransom. He paid a price for my return. That price was his son. His entirely pure and innocent blood of his son is shed for me. For us, God is showing his immeasurable riches of grace in his kindness. Not only is he paying our ransom, he's also allowing me to share in the riches, riches and I'll be seated in heaven with Christ. With redemption, when God looks at me, he says, Hi, my son. When he looks at my wretched, selfish, sinful life, he sees a great and mighty son and says, Welcome home. Remember, I was dead separated from God. I can't resuscitate myself. I can't bring myself back 
from death. But in my new redeemed self, I had nothing to do with that. I can't stand up here and look at you and say, I was dead and now they live because nothing. I did nothing. Just like I can't bring myself from a back from a physical death, I couldn't bring myself back from a spiritual death. Instead, God restored me from what I've been, from dead to a new birth. So now why? So walk in good works. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. We are the image bearers of God. God has a good idea what he's doing. Let me take a part of my creation that will both bear my image and will love and adore me. There's no other part of this creation that does that, but we do that. Verse 10 says, we don't do good works to become God's creation. We are already God's created, and we were created for good works. The idea of creation is not just to make something else, but it implies that it makes something else for a reason and for the creator. So if I'm working on a project at home, I'm doing it for myself. God made us for himself. When we look at creation narrative, we see the universe God made is put in the hand of his greatest creation. Man, he tells Adam, Adam, help me take care of all this. So again, I ask, why? For good works. We are made so that we may reconcile to God who created us and that we will serve him without question. Not conditionally, not when we feel good. We were designed by God that we be reconciled to him and that the good works we do are the consequences of God working in us. So the good works don't come first. We are reconciled with God, and now we do good works. The evidence of God working in our hearts is the good works that we do. It becomes the second nature. So you say there are lots of people who aren't Christians that do good things. To whom do they give credit? Well, to those who created the world, do they do what they do? Do they take credit for their own work? All that... All this is still part of the condition of the creator of God. When my dad sat next to me on that bed that afternoon, he had a simple hope for me. He was a part of helping to bring me into the world. His hope was that one day I would grow to a point that I would do or not do something just because he asked. Good works are the outpouring of God's restorative work in us. God doesn't need us to do anything. God wants us to include us to do good works in his name and for his glory. This has been man's struggle throughout time. When we will be willing to totally turn our lives over to God, we will serve God doing good works as part of our nature. Not a second nature, but as our nature. It will be who we are. When we become a Christian, we are a new creation. And with that comes a journey of sanctification 
where we are replacing our old self on this long path of being cleansed and leading to holiness. As Jesus tells his disciples in John 15, 5, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that bears my fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. Abiding in Christ is the path to righteousness. Later in 15.8, he adds, But this my Father, by this my Father is glorified, that you will bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. It's not bear some fruits and I will make you my disciples. It's that because you will bear good fruits and prove that you are my disciples. I'll be honest with you. How to do this has not always been easy. Not for me. I'm selfish. I want to take the easy way out oftentimes. However, in my heart, I truly desire to have my old nature replaced with the redeemed nature that is within me, wanting to go and grow and wanting to do God's good work. Over the years, there have been lots of good books written. (coughs) Many of them are talking about disciplines of prayers and reading scriptures and fastings. But these are just practices. But there have been some good books written about how to replace the old nature with the new nature. One of the ones that many of us studied years ago was John Owen's book written in the late 1600s, The Mortification of Sin. Deciding each minute of each day to put sin behind us to die for self, and to live for Christ. As the world became even more enlightened and began to think more highly of itself, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book back in 1976, How Should We Now Live? Feeling that the Western civilization and all of its uh, appealing, appetizing um, ways uh, to modern man was wrought with danger. Man was getting more and more comfortable both taking credit and promoting itself as superior. Man was doing a lot of good things, but were they all the good works that God desired? Most recently, in 2003, John Piper wrote the book, Don't Waste Your Life. In his preface, he characterizes all of us as two groups. Pretty obvious. Either we're Christians or God is working in us to make us. If we are Christians, then your life is no longer your own. It was purchased by Christ with his blood. You're owned doubly by God. He created you, and then he bought you back at the cost of his own son. The path of God-exalting joy will cost you your life. In Matthew 16, 25-26, Jesus tells his disciples, Whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what should a man give in return for his soul? Don't take my word for it. Take God's word for it. We were made to do good works of our Father. If we truly believe the gospel, then the evidence of the gospel will be the good works that we do. If you're here today and you're struggling with a decision to follow Christ, now is the time to find the answers to the questions 
that's keeping you away. The Spirit is calling you. He's just waiting for you to reply. If you have specific questions, David and I will be available after the service to answer any questions. For the rest of you, to call yourselves children of Christ. Now what? I hope you're finding ways to be grateful for the gift of salvation and the work, working each day to live that day with thankfulness and the praise of the one who both created you and redeemed you. That day back in 1969 when my dad revealed his hope for me just to trust him enough to do something just because he changed me. I wasn't a perfect chance of that. I didn't do everything that I was asked the first time. I didn't always do the things uh, that my dad um, asked. I didn't always do things that my dad was proud of. But I did understand from that day on that my father just wanted me to trust him. I took him up on that. I took the opportunity to listen more and to ask more questions, to actually learn the things that he could teach me. I will never forget any of the things that he taught me, things like white, black, and red lights. Important. What is a circuit? That one came with a little shock to it. Why I should respect my mom, and for that matter, anyone else. I truly believe that this was a huge contributor to why in the eighth grade I was able to trust my life to Christ. And how as a 19-year-old, I realized it was time I'd be obedient and follow in baptism. I didn't have to ask God why. God desired it. I wanted to be obedient. Now God wanted to do good works, not for me. I can get nothing more from God than the eternal life I already have being gifted by him. I can't be any more saved than I am today because if I do something else for God or because I'm trying to impress someone. But God's glorious good works in my life should make me want to live each day for him. Father, we are humbled by the reality that even in the midst of our wretched, sinful lives, you provided an atonement for our sins. You provided your son to pay the price for the sins that we created and are still creating. That you wanted to restore your people to a point where we could enjoy eternal life with you and with your son. Father, I pray that as each of us has made this decision or will be making this decision in our lives, Lord, that we will understand that we now are making the choice to live for you. That our thankfulness should show in the way that we live our lives for you. Not taking glory for anything that we've done. We've done nothing to save ourselves, Lord. But we give you the glory and in that we serve you. And in that service to you, Lord, we show our love for you. Father, I thank you for your love in our life, and I thank you for your grace in our life. And I pray, Lord, just for your abundant grace as we walk forward each and every day. In Christ's name I pray.